Welcome to another episode of Pop Screen, the Geek Show podcast dedicated to the good, the bad and the bewildering of movies by, starring or about pop stars. You know, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from science fiction to documentaries. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I write inlay booklets for Second Run. I'm a critic for The Geek Show and Horrified Magazine and a filmmaker. And this week I've been joined by... Mick! who reviews all sorts of stuff for all sorts of people, almost on demand. Um, and, uh, yeah. You're not good at self-promotion, are you, Mick? I'm not, no. <laughs> I'm not. Well, I, 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 like, I like to hide my bushel. No, I like to hide my light under a bushel. I, I, I also have no like light, to... if I'm honest. I also like to set fire to Gary Bushel, but that's not what we're here for. I'd rather set fire to Gary Newman, if I'm honest. <laughs> See if the paint on his hair melts. <laughs> normally, listeners, normally I try to make these introductions as impartial as possible, at most outlining a popular consensus rather than my own opinions, but this week it will be impossible. For this week, we are talking about Janelle Monáe, an artist who, ever since I saw her deliver a ferocious James Brown-inspired funk workout on the David Letterman show 11 years ago, has seemed to me to embody everything that music ought to be. Back That's then, a she sentence was... you don't get to use often enough, is it? It's not, no. There can only be so many people who do that. Yeah. Yeah. Back then, she was promoting the Arc Android, a record whose Afrofuturist take on the concept album spanned pop, hip-hop, funk, folk, soul, R&B, psychedelia, electro-pop, bossa nova, and Gregorian chanting. Later releases have been more pop-focused, but just as ambitious, with her 2018 album Dirty Computer breaking with her usual role-playing to produce her most personal work to date. She is an LGBTQ icon, a science fiction visionary, a musical prodigy, and the one plausible inheritor to the cultural space vacated by Prince and David Bowie. Anyway, this is a movie she was in. Right, is that it? <laughs> I wish that was it. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not as au fait with the works of Miss Monet as, as your good self, but um, I like, I've liked what I've heard, I've liked what I've seen. Mm. Um, I, I spotted a performance she did at I believe it was, uh, do you know, I believe it was somewhere in a field in Glastonbury. Uh, do they do festivals there now? I, I believe they have some kind of pop event. Uh, <laughs> or, they, or they did till this bloody pandemic. Yeah. Um, yes, and she did a set there. And uh, I thought I was watching like some kind of ska revival. Uh, oh, because that was the, I assume, the 2011 one where her and all her band were in, like, monochrome. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic um, set, yes. It was. Um, so, uh, I mean, obviously, as, as we've discussed on other episodes of the show, I'm not that current, so I didn't watch it in 2011. I probably watched it last summer when they were doing a sort of best of Glastonbury because Glastonbury's not on. Yes, absolutely. But, but there was that joyous thing, wasn't there, where BBC iPlayer opened the archives and put loads of absolutely vintage sets yeah. like that on, which yeah. really lifted that summer for me. But based on that, I, I thought, well, this film sounds interesting. 
Based on that, we thought, oh, let's do a Janelle Monáe movie for pop screen. Which shall it be? The acclaimed hidden figures? Mm, maybe not. The Oscar-winning Moonlight? Eh, could do, but she's only in that for a little bit. Let's do Antebellum. Because, listeners, we're fucking idiots. <laughs> now, let's, yeah. be, let's be positive for yeah, a moment, yeah. if we can. Yeah. I think Miss Monet... Mm. Is pretty damn good in it. I would agree, yes. And I think, despite my feelings about the film as a whole, this is a challenging role. It certainly puts her, face, her through her paces more than Moonlight, which, wonderful film though it is, requires her to basically be nice to a kid, which, yeah. you know, I'm sure she can do, but there is a lot of ground that she has to cover in Antebellum. Yeah. Um now, I'm, I'm going to confess, I've actually watched the second two acts of this twice. The first time, it was because I'd been travelling and mm. was watching it at the end of a, a quite tiring day. And I watched it again today just because I thought I might have drifted off and missed a bit. Oh, yeah, because that... that... That is exactly the feeling that I had. I thought, no, there must be something else here that I've not picked up on. And then you realise, oh, no, it is actually as banal as it looks. Now, again, on that air of positivity, when I was watching it the first time, I sat up and took notice because I thought the opening sequence mm. was almost Kubrick-esque in its use of little dialogue and choreographed to, to the score. Yeah, I will say, while we're on a positive tip, that that score is by Nate Wonder and Roman Janatha, who are alumni of Monet's own Wonderland Arts Collective. Uh, Roman Janatha also put out a fantastic EP of Radiohead covers that features Janelle Monet singing No Surprises a few years ago. And this is a really accomplished, striking classical but still surprising score that they've put together for this film and i thought in general the cinematography was strong yeah absolutely yeah right go. yeah it's i mean before you said cinematography my my next point was going to be it's almost isn't it almost as if anyone who isn't directly tied to wonderland arts collective really cocks up in this movie well, the thing is about it, if if I strip it down into all its constituent parts, mm. it's great. Yeah. Each individual component is fine. The script or the dialogue element of the script is mm. fine. The performances range from good to great. Yeah. The cinematography is generally good. The score, as you mentioned, yeah. is great. But somehow, what someone's managed to do is take all those fantastic ingredients, put them in a mixing pot, and come up with a Big Mac. Yeah, that, that is very much what it feels like. And... and the other thing I think it is, is it's like an M. Night Shalyman film where he forgot to put the twist in. 
Oh no, there is a twist, and I was I was literally going to say it is an absolute shamalan of a twist. It is an absolute clunker of a twist. It is a twist that you work out part way through, and part of you thinks <laughs> it would be funny if they did that, and then as it goes on, you think, oh no, they oh no, to... they're really going to do that, aren't they? This is why I ended up re-watching it, because at first it looks like it's a time travel-y thing. Yeah. Like a, it's like an extended X-Files episode or something. Mm. And that's why I re-watched it, because I thought I'd missed the bit where the time travel bit, and it turned out, no, I didn't. You didn't, no. Before no. we get too deep into this, we should basically explain the concept of it. And I, yes. I think we should probably explain it by what the trailer looked like, because if there was... If there was one thing that was making people who aren't, like myself, clever and right enough to be obsessed with Janelle Monet excited about this, it was the fact that this has an incredibly strong trailer. Mm. And all the trailer promises you is that Janelle Monet is playing two roles here. One of them is Eden, a slave in the antebellum South who is as you would expect, suffering horrendously. The antebellum was a, a time when 18% of America's population was enslaved. The absolute horrible zenith of slavery as an institution. And then we see her as, uh, is it Veronica? Veronica, yeah. yes. An author in the present a civil rights activist, a happily married woman with a child. But there is some sort of connection beyond just they're played by the same actor, that Eden is in her bed when she hears Veronica's cell phone, that there seem to be planes in the sky, that there are other anachronisms of costume and jewellery and other things that in another film you would just write off as a continuity error, but this is focusing on them, asking yeah. you to work out how the pieces of the puzzle fit together. It sounds really good. Yeah. Because from what I saw prior to watching it um, and agreeing to, to be on this episode of Pop Screen, mm. um, I was imagining a kind of hybrid of sort of 12 years a slave and mm. cloud atlas yeah yeah that's a good one yeah that's what i was imagining 12 years a slave is a good comparison point not just because obviously you know it, it's the thing that made hollywood less squeamish about slave narratives that's you know a huge part of why this film exists but the other thing about 12 Years a Slave is if you think about all of the acts of violence in it, whether it's Chiwetel Ejiofor snapping and beating up Paul Dano, whether it's Michael Fassbender raping Lupita Nyong'o, whether it's the whipping scene at the end, they're horrible. But every single one of them pushes the plot forward. Yeah. The first 40 minutes of Antebellum are just wallowing in abuse yeah i don't think there. Uh, i mean you have to show some you have to establish what kind of world these slaves yeah. are living in but it gets to the point where every time two characters go into a room you think 
all right, what's it going to be this time? Branding, whipping, rape, you know, what's, how is this going to end? Because yeah. we know it's going to end badly and it becomes really numbing and deadening. And I'm going to say it exploitative in a way that yeah. I really don't think 12 Years a Slave is. Yeah. And that's, that is the thing. This is, until we switch to the, to the modern day, modern mm. day, with yeah. uh, Veronica and her book tour. Um, it's a really hard watch. Yeah. It's it's not, as you say, it's not a watch where it's enlightening you to the conditions that these people were living in. It is exactly what you expect historic slavery yeah. to look like, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... Yeah. And the other thing I think is that you mentioned the cinematography earlier. I will just bring up the name of the cinematographer there. Uh, it's um, Pedro Luke. And yes, does a fantastic job, certainly. I think he is doing exactly what is asked of him in a very technically proficient way. I think the problem I have with the cinematography lies with the directors, uh, Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz, who know that they want to show a lot of violence but they don't seem to have have thought about how that can bring us into a character and the the killer example for of it for me is the scene where Casey Clemens's character miscarries in the cotton field yeah and they choose to depict this by I mean, watch again, what Clemens is doing is fine. Casey Clemens is a very good actress and she sort of looks up and she clutches her stomach and she screams and, you know, that's obviously a perfectly fine way of conveying this. But the camera is above her as she looks up and as she screams, it begins sort of backing away in this really elaborate crane shot. Mm -hmm. And I just think that is the visual style all over. It gives you a horror and it makes it into this elaborate blockbuster shot. It literally yeah. takes you away from the character's pain as yeah. it happens. There is a lot of slow motion. There, I, I would say there are two and a half Zack Snyder's worth of <laughs> slow-mo in this film. Which, of course, the, uh, the SI organisation have now established as the standard uh, system of measurement for slow motion. The standard system of slow motion is the amount of slow motion Zack Snyder would use to show a character, say, getting out of bed and brushing their teeth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I did think that despite the fact that that cinematography is a technical marvel, it aestheticizes the violence in ways that... You know, it, it's not like it's the only problem. I mean, the fact that Janelle Monáe's character doesn't fucking speak until about the 20-minute mark <laughs> is a bit of a problem in relating yeah. to her, I think. Yeah. I mean, I kind of try... I kind of get what the film's trying to achieve, but I also don't. Mm. In order to say why you don't, shall we put a spoiler warning up front? Because I think when you talk about the cumulative meaning of this film, we're going to have to explain how it unfolds. Yeah. 
Yeah. So if you don't want to hear spoilers, listeners, please, you know, uh, stop listening now because we are going to go into that. Normally at this point we'd say, go away and watch the film. Yes. But yeah. we don't necessarily want to put our listeners through that, do we? No, no. I think, you know, personal injury lawsuits being as rife as they are at the moment, I don't want to encourage anyone to really be doing that. I'm, I think I'm still processing parts of the plot. Because it goes from there, like at, at about the what, 40 minute mark, after about yeah. 40 minutes of absolutely relentless rape and torture and branding, uh, it you finally hear that mobile phone go off, just like you saw in the trailer without it yeah. taking 40 minutes about it. And there seemed to be some sort of evidence that um, there was some kind of ritual involving markings on the bed and stuff like that. And it was almost like it had a, almost like it had a mystical, you know, it, that was some kind of totem that would invoke whatever it was that pulled it felt like that was a, a sort of that 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 engraving that carving on the bed mm. uh, or on the side of the shed or w- whatever it was um, that was the totem that would invoke the magic that called across the generations to yes the modern day to to find Veronica and yeah. let her know what we, we assume is her ancestor is so, going through. Yeah, like some sort of um, bat signal. <laughs> Thank you for bringing the toniness of this episode down to an acceptable level, by the you, way. You, yeah. you mentioned Zack Snyder. Uh, it's a fair point. Yeah, it's a fair point. Well made. Yeah, and... We see Veronica go about her day-to-day life. Uh, We see her with her husband and her young kid. And we see her on a very sort of well-recreated, I must say, credit where credit's due, a very well-recreated American news show where she is arguing with an old white guy who is introduced as something like author and eugenics expert. And you think... Yeah, if anything, sounds uh, not racist enough for yeah, uh, modern yeah. cable news. But I, I, I believe it's because Donald Trump wasn't available. Shoots his cameo, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a parallel universe, isn't there, where Trump never runs for president and he just carries on doing cameos in crap movies like yeah. he used to. I wonder what movies he would be most likely to turn up in. Of course... If you think about it, if you think about the the, the infinite multi- universes that there are in the multiverse theory, there's also one where he's the basis for the film Forrest Gump. I mean, it's technically possible, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, back to yeah, you. You broke my mind a bit with Forrest <laughs> Trump there. I think I can't. I needed a second to reset after that. Melania always said, laugh with like a box of chocolates. <laughs> a thing she had never experienced personally, yes. <laughs> right. So, yeah, um, 
she goes about her day-to-day -day life. She goes for a night out with her friends, one of whom is uh, Gabri Sidibe, Oscar-nominated for Precious, and who is now in this movie in the role of the only person who is allowed to have any fun in the whole thing. Yes, yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's a responsibility that she takes on well. Yeah, is, absolutely, you know. yeah. I like Gabri Sidibe. I think she's... That was the year that Sandra Bullock won her Best Actress Oscar, which I don't think anyone now thinks was the, the wisest decision. <laughs> uh, and I would say I would have been quite happy with Gabri Sidibe winning for Precious because she was really good in that film. Yeah. But, hey, Oscars, what are they now? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. If I, if I, if I wanted to make a podcast complaining about every Oscar mistake it would run for even longer than Cinema Eclectica did. <laughs> but yeah, and here's the thing. I mean, I can understand why uh, Bush and Rents' imagining of 19th century chattel slavery is a bit thin, is a bit inspired by what they've seen in other movies. That's, that's one thing. Their imagining of what a modern-day successful professional woman might live like is also really scanty. Like they've seen yeah. at most maybe a movie and a TV show about this and just yeah. thought, yeah, we could write that. Because yeah. she has a perfect home life, uh, a career is going great, she goes out for a drink with her friends, and that's basically the limit of what we learn about Veronica. I mean, even even really banal stuff like she doesn't have to argue too strongly with them when they say, no, 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 I've got to be up early. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's going great for her. And I, I suppose to, to drag it back to this movie's politics of representation, which I, I assume is what all of our listeners think two rapidly greying white blokes should be doing with their yeah. time, but we'll try and make this painless listeners. Um, it, it is one of those things where it's about the perfect victim, which I think is, is, is kind of maddening. It's like for, yeah. for what happens to her to be seen as awful by the viewers, her life has to be perfect. And you think, well, no, I'm capable of empathising with someone flawed. I don't think yeah. anyone deserves that. I don't think you have to make her as much of a living saint for this yeah. storyline to have the impact. And, the, and, and, and that is the thing that gets bludgeoned home, isn't it? It's, mm. you know, not only is she um, a successful author, not only does she have the perfect home life, but... When she sells copies of her books at her seminars, 20% goes to uh, education <laughs> charities. Um, yeah. I, I think she heals three lepers on the way out of the hotel. <laughs> um, <laughs> what a gal. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, and the irony is is that I already see Janelle Monáe as being an essentially perfect human, and even <laughs> I was begging them to tone it down a bit. Yeah. But this is where we get into spoiler territory, because 
there is a sequence, an effective sequence, I will say again, yeah. looking for the positive, an effective sequence where her and her friends get two separate Ubers and her friends end up singing along loudly to Juice by Lizzo and she ends up trapped in this rather ominous car listening to Warm Leatherette by The Normal, which, you know, as musical juxtapositions go, is great. I love that. It was lost on me. It I was, think it was basically that noise these young people listen to. The normal. <laughs> yeah. Not this something is, that's been on my radar. This is one of those things like Kenneth being immortal in 30 Rock, isn't it? You're gonna like talk this way about Max Bygraves next. Who? <laughs> is he one of them drill artists? <laughs> I've never heard of the normal. When were the normal active? I'm going to look this up uh, just to make it clear who is indeed the normal one. Well, it's not going to be one of us two, is it? <laughs> music, the normal, a recording project of English music producer Daniel Miller. Years active, 1978 to 1979. Not a long career, I grant you, but it's within your era, I would say. Well, yeah, but I was like 10. I can sort of see how this music would not be appealing to 10-year-olds. You know, we're also talking about um, that was the year that the charts were dominated by the soundtrack from Greece. <laughs> I would love to hear the normal play the soundtrack to Greece. And uh, as, as we've mentioned on a previous episode, or possibly a subsequent episode, I don't know. We've mentioned it on another episode. I was listening to Slade, Arrows, Gilbert and Sullivan, Rogers and Hammerstein, and Susie Quattro. Yeah, that's true. I, I can understand how that would be, you know, a full diet. Yeah. <laughs> I just, uh, now, now we've looked it up, I just want to read out this bit from the Normals Wikipedia page because, it, you know, when Wikipedia gets really bitchy. Yeah. I always love that shit, um, and he's a classic example of it. Here is the forming of the normal according to the doubtless utterly reliable source of Wikipedia. In 1977, Miller had split up with his girlfriend. A friend suggested that he read a book the friend himself had just finished. The book was Crash by J.G. Ballard. It's good already, isn't it? <laughs> He felt Ballard's writing took him five minutes into the future. The novel was to be a major influence in the music he would produce as the normal. Miller was disillusioned by the fact that you needed to learn three chords to be in a punk band, so he decided to purchase a synthesizer. His thinking was that you only needed to learn to press one key on a synthesizer. <laughs> and that is how Warm Leatherette was born. Right. I, I think... For me, mm. any book that changes my life needs to take me more than five minutes into another timeline. But if you're constantly five minutes into the future, that's better than going 10 years into the future and eventually sort of catching up with yourself, right? I don't know. I mean, you know, for example... 
if I've just read a book that takes me five minutes into the future, mm. I would have already known who the novel was. That's not going to change my life. <laughs> Being five minutes into the future can give you all sorts of vital information, like look out for that falling plant pot. You're not going to get that going 10 years. No, but by going 10 years into the future, I've missed not only the plant pot, but also the possible invention of hovering plant pots that cause no danger to passers-by. Okay, I'm going to put down the trump card here, right? Imagine if someone had said to you, in 2011, do you want to go 10 years into the future? And you'd said yes. How utterly miserable would you have been seeing 2021? Well, quite, because I'd have had to watch Antebellum again. <laughs> well done for taking it back round. That hey? was one of our hey? biggest detours. <laughs> yes, I think. <laughs> yes. So they, they are in the car listening to Lizzo slash the normal, depending on which car you're in. And the thing happens, which is that Jenna Malone, who is, is normally a sign that things are about to get fun, but not here, folks, not here, uh, kidnaps Veronica. And it is revealed that the first half of the film is actually set in the modern day as well. Yeah. A version of the modern day where absolutely no one says, even when the plantation owners are well out of sight, well out of earshot, absolutely no one says, this is fucking ridiculous, it's 2020. Yes. That's that. That's the thing that gets... Because this, this did that. This was the plot of the Shalyman film, wasn't it? It was was the in village. the village. Yes. Yeah. This makes as little sense as it did then. Yeah. <laughs> it's impressive how the passage of time has failed to, to me... put a rosy glow <laughs> over that, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But this is it. You know, all these people. You, know, you then learn that there, there are mobile phones everywhere. Yeah. Uh, that are visitors to this place because it's like a theme park, the colonial theme park place. Yes. And you think, what? <laughs> there is the, you know, as soon as I saw it, I my as soon as this twist was revealed, my first thought was, have they fortified against major security breaches, like say? someone driving past. Yeah. And the answer is no. What they've done is in that idea of make the lie really big, they've put a big <laughs> put a big sign up saying colonial reconstruction. <laughs> I suppose it, it kind of works because if you sort of said to me, uh, do you want to go and see some southern US politicians plantation theme park, my answer would be Christ no. Yeah. So it does a pretty good job putting you off visiting. But I, I mean the thing is, right, you mm. know, even in the context of it's a colonial reenactment theme park. Yeah. Right. They do 
quite a lot of Renaissance fairs and medieval fairs yeah. in, in the US. Yeah. yeah. When they go to the medieval ones, it's all about, you know, like jousts and many tournaments. They don't yes. bring out they don't bring out plague victims yeah. <laughs> to lick you. <laughs> and, you know, I can sort of see what they're going for here because people in America still have plantation weddings and this is kind of mind blowing that, mm. you know, in Europe nobody goes to you know concentration camps to get married no. but in america in certain states it is perfectly normal to go to these historic centers of injustice and have it as the romantic backdrop for your wedding so i suppose they're kind of going for something about that but it's one of those twists for even i and i love dream logic in films i love david lynch i mm. love maya deven i love ilda cohen yedi terence malik you know i've even been known to enjoy a few products by alejandro hodorowsky and i know he's a big favorite of yours mick well i've, I've never dabbled with his filmic exploits but his comics have sort of scarred me for life Yes, yeah. I don't think the films are going to turn you around. Because the comics aren't based on dream logic, they're based on five-year-old logic telling a story. <laughs> but yeah, even I am going through this thinking, yeah, but how did you... But what was the... But why didn't they... <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where... The, the fact that it tries to wrong foot you at the beginning into thinking mm. that there's a separation between the time zones. Yeah. It makes you start thinking, well, what if they had written it as the time travel story? Mm. And then you start thinking back and thinking, does it hold up as it does? At the no, it doesn't. Did they start thinking about writing a time travel story and then think, no, no, buy this. There are a lot of things like those symbols on the bed you mentioned, like the butterfly symbol, which, as yeah. you can see, is everywhere in the yeah. film's marketing and almost nowhere in the film itself. Um, there are some things that seem to imply they were going for a more mystical or science fictional explanation and then just inexplicably decided that this was better. Yeah, it's such a wasted opportunity it's such a strange thing and yeah you know, i read an interview with bush and rent about it that ran on letterboxd uh about the film and one of the things they said which I, I think is kind of interesting in terms of how the film pans out is um they didn't want anyone using the n-word because they said as soon as someone uses the n-word it kind of gives the audience license to think, oh, right, they're racists. That what That's the word that racists use. Thank God I'm not like that. And on its own, I think that is a valid argument. Mm. You know, I think that you, you can say that it is harder to present racism as being insidious and being still present in society if you use this uh, inflammatory language that most people do not use. It, it, it is kind of complicated by the fact that when the racist power structure in Antebellum is revealed, it's the dumbest, most cartoonish version of racism you've ever yeah. seen in your life. Yeah. I, mean, I as a white man, did not feel implicated by no, this. No. Is that because you don't draw your accent? 
it's, in any way, shape, or form. It's because I am not Foghorn Leghorn. Um, <laughs> oh, the <and>, Colonel. <laughs> and also, uh, not only have I never kidnapped a successful black person and forced her to live in my weird cosplay version of slavery, if somebody told me they were doing that, I'd think, that's bad. Yes, stop that immediately. Yeah. I think the most insidious aspect of the whole thing is the, the implication of the kid in the whole thing. Yeah. Um, or, you know, you, you're painting this bad picture of the... I mean, maybe, maybe it wasn't that she wanted to take her to this place to be enslaved. Maybe she just really wanted that play date. <laughs> yes. But some people take that level of rejection quite, quite badly. And, you know, if you want to make a film about Jenna Malone stalking Janelle Monet, I'm also up for that. That also sounds better than this. What the hell? And, and that was the other thing. With the kid turning up in the lift, mm. um, with Veronica, there's an element of it that feels a bit Shining-esque. Yeah, And certainly yeah. some of the corridor shots... Again, that parallel with Kubrick, some of the corridor shots where you just see legs going yes, through. Yes, yeah. Very strong stuff. Very strong stuff for no good reason. Yeah. That's the, that's the phrase that we should have been using from the beginning, isn't it? Antebellum. Very strong stuff for no good reason. Yeah. Well, actually, we could do that if, if, if we're synopsizing. We could, uh, you know, a slave works up uh, for no good reason. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was, uh, while we're thinking about what else this could have been other than uh, uh, the world's most overt kidnapping ring, um, yeah. because aside from anything else, I mean, she's a successful author. People are going to notice. Yeah, she's got yeah. like speaking gigs and news channel gigs booked all across the country. Yeah, and they just take her. It's like I don't. It feels like the kind of criminal plot that you you write when you're obsessed with these weird kind of internet communities where people obsess over some celebrity changing their haircut and say, oh, what message is that sending out to monarch CIA mind controllers? It's like, yeah. in, in, in the real world, actual trafficking organisations, actual kidnappers do not do hand signals on magazine covers to let you know that they're operating. No. You know, not everything is a breadcrumb trail. No. And it the, feels... Um, it's almost like whoever the mastermind is, which never really becomes clear no, behind this whole operation. No. Um, once, he, once he figured out he could do face recognition on the mobile phones, he thought, that's it. That's my Clark Kent moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I can't see any possible weakness in this plan. Do you remember the Ian Fleming's novel version of Moonraker where um, Hugo Drax gets all of his employees to shave their head and grow a big bushy mountain man beard 
And then if they're ever in trouble, they just shave off their beard and let their hair grow out and they're unrecognisable. <laughs> that is a better plan than this. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, so while I was trying to work out ways that this could have gone differently, there was a very good review of this in Vulture by Angelica Jade Bastian, who said, Veronica has this line that is something like, our ancestors haunt our dreams to see themselves in the future or something like that. Now that would have been a great tagline for the film that this looked like it was going to be. Exactly. And Bastian points out that that sounds an awful lot like the plot of Kindred by the pioneering science fiction writer Octavia Butler, who is also a favourite of Janelle Monáe. Ah. There is an appearance she made on the Colbert show to promote Dirty Computer, where she name drops Octavia Butler as an influence and people in the audience clap and cheer. And I thought, you know, sometimes the mainstreaming of nerd culture is a good thing. I'm happy that I can live in a time where someone on a mainstream chat show can say they love Octavia Butler and there's a round of applause. Yeah, you see, I've tried the same with Olaf Stapleton and no one, not a titter. Is it because Olaf Stapleton sounds like he hosts some sort of a DIY Joe show and everyone's just thinking, is he on changing rooms or the repair <laughs> shop? <laughs> I think that takes it back to what I think is this movie's original sin in that it takes Janelle Monet and it does, while offering her the opportunity to do interesting things, it does nothing interesting with her. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I was gonna. I thought you were gonna say that this film takes Janelle Monae and does horrible things to her, both. <laughs> both yeah, I mean, both in I mean, camera it, and. <laughs> yeah, it it does creatively, but yeah, um, but you know, Moonlight is is not a happy tale, and I, I think that film is perfectly respectful of its characters, including hers. Yeah. And this is the thing, Bowie had a bit of a, because I know you like a Bowie mention. I I keep it low-key, but yeah, yeah, Yeah. I'm a bit of a Bowie fan. Yeah. Um, Bowie had a bit of a sketchy career with the the film projects that he uh, chose to do, didn't he? Mm, Yeah. And I think um, maybe Janelle is having a similar... Maybe this is her just a gigolo to Moonlight, the man who fell to earth. Yeah. 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 I think... And, and I, I think possibly she, she's she been seduced by a, a worthiness to the script that ultimately in the finished project, product wasn't there. And yeah. How much of that is down to studio interference or whatever else might be, you know, financial backers or whatever. I don't know, but maybe this is a watered-down version of what she thought she was signing up for. Well, I think that that's possibly true. I think the script has huge, huge problems, but I will say this. You can't see the crane shots. I think she read this, and when you have those scenes of enslaved women miscarrying and being branded and being raped and being beaten. She did not know that every shot is going to be like a a big beauty shot against this gorgeous southern sunset that 
really for for all it like i say it is technically very good the constant urge to beautify the plantation yeah. rubbed me the wrong way yeah you know it is already a beautiful location that's its problem that's why people still have weddings there but you don't have to lean on it you don't have to join in as yeah. a director so mm. I've I've realised that we can't be anti anti bellum. Yeah, we we are super as hell not pro bellum. No, but we're also not pro anti bellum. No, it's a tricky no. one. It's a tricky fence to sit on. This is this is more of a conundrum than anything that is happening in the movie. I'll give it that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's ultimately, I think what we're looking at here is one of the problems that pop star movies always have to face, which is how do you get someone who, while they may be able to act, and I do think Janelle Monáe is a terrific actress, yeah. but while they are able to act, the set of associations that the audience has with them is not to do with acting and how do you get them past that well i think i think we again I, I, i'm gonna do it just because you're holding back but um, yeah if you think about someone like bowie yeah the film projects tended to come during lulls between albums and yeah. he also had that way of sort of going away as ziggy stardust and coming back as aladdin saying uh, screaming yeah. Lord Byron and all those things, and although you knew it was Bowie, mm. it was a different persona again. So the the actual roles in the films were just another facet of that. I think mm. it's a bit more different for uh, a bit more difficult for someone like uh, Janelle Monet because she's current. And yeah. By by current, I mean she's she's not doing films in lulls between music projects and tours she's doing it parallel with um, yeah that is quite odd actually that burst of activity that she had with hidden figures and moonlight came not long before dirty computer yeah yeah, yeah. so i i just and I, you know part of that is that modern recording techniques mean that you can you know do an album without necessarily planting yourself in a fixed place for six months to this is true yeah the track. um but i just i just wonder if maybe she sort of needs to take a look back and think right whilst it's absolutely on brand in terms of my ideologies and political motivations and things like that is mm. it on brand with the artist because again a bit like Bowie, there's this sense of otherness with Monet. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of what you're saying there is is seeing herself as an an artist mm. in all of its that term's breadth yeah. rather than just an actor or a singer. Because yeah. I think 
And I think she knows this, which makes this film even stranger. I think she knows that she represents culturally an icon of optimism in a time that does not have many of those. Yeah. That when I think of Janelle Monet, I think of someone who isn't ducking tough questions and difficult issues, certainly not, but yeah. who represents a starry-eyed vision of how things can still change for the better. That is the yeah. ideology I get from her music. Yeah. And while you can take that person and put them into the shoes of a character who is really suffering, I mean, it is acting, you know, it's, yeah. it's not her, but Bush and Rents don't even seem to have thought this might be an issue. No. And that's weird to me. Yeah, well, I'm I'm going off now to start a Kickstarter campaign to get a cinematic version of Olaf Stapleton's um, First and Last Men, uh, but with a gender-switched uh, role designed for... For Janelle. Right, here we go. Just, yeah, <laughs> there we go. Thank you. <laughs> And that's the magic of Zoom. Marvellous. We couldn't have planned that better. If you're listening to the audio version of this, listeners, you have no idea what went on there. But rest assured, it was a cinematic illusion worthy of Melier. <sighs> Marvellous. You're going to yeah. have to use that bit in the trailer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um... <laughs> and then people will be really disappointed, a bit like anyone who saw the trailer for Auntie Bella. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Um, no, I think I yeah. think that's covered it. Yeah, yeah, and I think we like like Janelle would want us to. We should end on a note of optimism that looks for the future, which is that you now have a tenor. Yes. Yeah. So if you enjoyed this podcast, listeners, uh, you can give us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. Maybe even write the review. It's the little things, but they do help. Uh, we also have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, where you can get our other movie podcast director's lottery. You can get my Doctor Who reviews and you can get a bonus episode of this podcast every single month. Uh, but until you next time. people. It's, it, if anything, it's too much, isn't it? It's too it generous. Yeah. yeah. But until then, uh, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. And I've been Mick. And we'll see you next week. Yeah.